fellowship. And then I also just want to draw your attention to the table that is up here right in front of the piano, MTT Ministries, and the Landis's have been with us before, but uh, their ministry is training young people to serve through short-term missions, and so they have uh, several opportunities coming up, including one uh, to Mexico over the Christmas uh, vacation time, then Japan and the Philippines this summer, and then a little bit later in the summer, uh, Western United States, and so they are here recruiting young people to participate in uh, one or more of these short-term missions trips. So they'll be up front at their table here at the end of the service. I encourage you to stop by and learn more about this ministry and consider what the Lord might have for you. I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to the Gospel of John. And we're going to spend most of our time in chapter 1, but I want you to go ahead and go right to the end of the book, John chapter 20. This morning in our Bibles, the Gospels of Matthew and Luke provide us the details of the Christmas story. And so it's in one of those two books that we typically spend our attention during this time of the year. But the Gospel of John lays a foundation for us in terms of establishing a critical component of the identity of Jesus And if that identity is not understood and believed, um, the rest of the Christmas story would amount to nothing more in terms of its profit than, you know, it's a wonderful life or, you know, the Christmas carol and other tales of that sort that can kind of move us to human sympathy and so on. The fact is that it's more than just Christmas, but the entirety of the Christian faith that rest on the foundation the Gospel of John lays concerning the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. The word gospel, we've noted on multiple occasions in the past, means the proclamation of good news. And each of the first four books of the New Testament are referred to as gospels. They do serve as proclamation of the good news about the life and ministry of Jesus. And And each of these four gospel records makes a distinctive emphasis concerning the the significance of of that life. And I think it was a year ago summer that we spent some time trying to capture the distinctive themes of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And when you do that for Matthew, Mark, and Luke, very often you start at the beginning and you just work your way right through and you begin to see some of the things that stand out. But when it comes to John, he actually has a clearly stated purpose, a purpose statement that is actually given right in the text. John chapter 20 and verse 30, if you'll look there, it says, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. So John's telling us that he was selective. He actually details only seven specific miracles. And he's referring to them here as signs. The miracles were signs of something about Jesus. In addition to those, there's the resurrection of Christ himself that would have been a witness uh, to his identity. There's some other facts. But John writes, there's much more I, I could have written about Jesus than what I did. But now notice in verse 31, he adds this. But these are written, I've been selective about these for this purpose, 
that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. So that is the the purpose statement of this book, and, and it reveals that John did not write his book just to inform people about this great historical figure. He certainly didn't write to entertain with kind of touching human interest stories like we often think of at Christmas. The purpose of this book is, as you can see in the last phrase, it is to persuade men to believe, to move people to a full persuasion about something. And it's interesting that the the verb believe is used over a hundred times in the Gospel of John in contrast to only 35 times in the other Gospels combined. And that doesn't mean that it's minimized there, but it clearly stands out here. In keeping with his purpose, he urges to believe again and again and again. He wrote with the intention of moving people to the place of full persuasion, of conviction, concerning who Jesus is. And you can see that he wants people to be convinced, first of all, that Jesus is the Christ. Backing up in verse 31, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And that word Christ is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew term for Messiah. The, the Greek word literally means anointed one, chosen one. This was the long-awaited priest that would offer up a perfect sacrifice for the sins of, of the people. This is the long-awaited prophet that the Lord said he would raise up like Moses that would give a full, authoritative, final message from God. This is the long-awaited king from the line of David that would receive from the Ancient of Days an everlasting kingdom. This, This is the seed of Abraham all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, whom all the, in whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. John wrote his book with the intent of persuading all of his readers that Jesus of Nazareth, that baby born in the manger in Bethlehem, that is none other than the one they had been waiting for for centuries. This is none other than the Christ, the Messiah. And not only is he the Christ, But he is also continuing on in verse 31 that you might believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And now by this point in the book, it's unmistakable what he means by that title, that Jesus is the Son of God. He means by that that Jesus of Nazareth is divine. He is none other than the God of heaven come in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity. And believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, is the way to receive eternal life. And I know we've gone over it, but just look again at verse 31. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have what? That believing ye might have life through his name. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes unto the Father but by him. When I was preparing to lead us in a message of uh, overviewing this book, 
that very week, Newsweek magazine printed uh, a result and commentary of a recent survey of 10,000 Americans who were asked to rate their chances of going to heaven or hell. And the responses were all over the map, from Catholics, from mainstream Protestants, even those claiming a born-again experience of some kind. I'm saying that all those under a Christian umbrella, (coughs) uh, their responses of whether they thought they had a decent chance of going to heaven or hell, and how they might end up going to one or the other, were just all over. It was like, you know, beauty in the eyes of the beholder. Everybody had their own idea of it. But if those people would just turn to the Gospel of John and read it with eyes opened by the Holy Spirit of God, they would come to learn without a shadow of a doubt how someone can come to know a personal assurance of eternal life. This is why the book is written, that you might believe and that in believing you might have life, life now and life for all eternity. And I've had us turn here to the end to demonstrate that that's what John had in mind from the beginning. But now I do want to go back to the beginning. If you will, go back to John chapter 1, the Gospel of John in chapter 1. And the first 18 verses of this first chapter are often called a, a prologue. They're designed to serve as the foundation for everything that follows to this message that we've seen, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And and Lord willing, for the next several weeks, we're going to give our attention to inspecting this foundation. It really is the foundation to that whole message. And I know inspecting a foundation is not uh, the first point of focus for most of us when we look for a house. All right? We we look at things like the neighborhood and (laughs) the size of the bedrooms and You know, depending on where you're at in the house, you know, the kitchen or the closets or how many bathrooms there are and and, and considerations of that nature. Uh, The foundation, the the soundness of the rest of the structure, maybe most of us typically take for granted. We might actually almost get irritated with a building inspector who points out a flaw. You you mean you're going to take away our dream? Uh, I know that my mom was looking for a house there in Wisconsin. A lot of those houses have basements, and um, it was interesting that she didn't ask me to go along to help her uh, look for houses because I'm almost uh, illiterate when it comes to any kind of construction thing. She asked a man, a man in our church who'd uh, been a plumber and involved in multiple uh, projects like that, but she said, you know, they'd go to a house, and he and his wife would meet her there, and... Um, He'd arrive and make his way to the basement, and he would check out the plumbing, he'd check out the electrical, things of that nature, and time after time after time, he had to tell my mom what looked like a great deal wasn't worth the trouble, because the foundation was not strong. And I trust that really God will help us, and that we'll all come with an earnestness to place a high value on inspecting the foundation stones, and the supporting walls of the Christian faith. Where those have been absent, in in many cases, it has just completely eroded gospel preaching. And 
While it may be absent from the minds of many and the significance eroded, I, I want to assure us, and I believe that God, by his spirit, will help assure us that the foundation of our faith is strong, and it's of utmost significance. We're going to confine our inspection, if you will, the foundation this morning to verses 1 and 2, primarily even verse 1. Notice John 1 and verse 1, in the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it's obvious, pretty superficial glance, that to understand the significance of this foundation, we have to, we have to understand that expression, the Word, given three times. How does that connect us to Jesus? And, and I'm going to be brief at this point, because I'm really getting ahead of ourselves in the passage, but look down to verse number 18. Verse 18 says, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath, and I'm just turning here for this point, look at this, he hath declared him. And, and that word declared is translated from the Greek term exegesis, and it means to lead out or to draw out. So in reference to teaching, it means to just unfold and explain the significance of an object or, or whatever is being studied. That's what we're actually trying to do in our preaching ministry here again and again. We're, we're, we are, instead of having a notion in our minds that we would like to try to make a scripture passage say, we try to investigate and to extract from the scripture what it says and then declare the significance of that for our lives and our worship of God. The fact that no one has seen God, as it says here, provides a hurdle to truly knowing God. How can you know someone that you've never seen? But what we're reading here in this text is that Jesus removes that hurdle by exegeting the Father, by declaring and explaining the Father. You know that you don't really know what I'm like, um, what I'm thinking, unless I use words to tell you what's on my mind. Uh, I don't know what you're thinking. You know, we kind of pick up on body language and facial expressions, but we don't really know what's happening unless we communicate. What is God like? What is God thinking? And the answer to that is, listen to Jesus. right? Observe Jesus. You will know what the Father is like by looking at Jesus. In fact, look at verse 14. We're getting back closer to our text. But notice verse 14, these familiar words. The Word was made flesh. And dwelt among us. And the idea there is he pitched his tent among us. He came right to where we are and, and dwelt with us. He gives in parentheses, we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The word coming and living with man allowed us to see something of the glory of the God that we haven't seen. And you don't need to turn there now, but listen to what the writer of Hebrews has to say about this. He said that before Christ, that many times, many ways, God spoke to our fathers. He's referring to the, 
to the Jewish fathers. He, he spoke to them by the prophets. But then listen to this. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, who is the, the radiance of his glory and the express image, or the idea is he is the exact imprint of the father's nature. You ever learn something more about parents through getting to know their kids? And sometimes you learn something that, you know, you come to, you come to realize they are so much like their parents. Sometimes you realize, I wouldn't have had that impression of them from just knowing their kids. <clears throat> but in this case, if you want to know the father, you have an exact imprint of him in the son. In fact, the son is a radiant outshining of all that the father is, of his unique excellence. This is what John has in mind by referring to Jesus as the word. He's the expression. He's the revelation. He's the communication. He's telling you what God is like and what God is thinking. He's the word that communicates the father. And he can be, and he is, the word because of what we learn back in verse 1. Notice in terms of his nature that he is eternal. That opening phrase says, in the beginning was the word. It is not that in the beginning the word came into existence. But that in the beginning was already in existence. So listen, when time as we know it began to be marked, the word had already been in existence before then. Psalm 90 and verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. He is the word from everlasting to everlasting. He's eternal. Secondly, in terms of his nature, that he is distinct from, but coexistent with the Father. In the beginning was the word, he's eternal. Second phrase, and the word was with God. So you can actually refer to both the word and to God. And that indicates there's a personal distinctiveness between the Father and the Son who reveals the Father. There isn't, there isn't one God who exists at different times in different modes. Or simply has different titles depending on what he's doing at a given time. It, it isn't like I'm just using myself because my, my family's here. It isn't like I'm at times pastor, at times husband, at times dad, but the same person. The word is, and the son is, a person who is personally distinct from the father. However, while he is distinct from the father, notice that he's also one with the father. The word was with God. They are contemporaneous to each other. It's not like a father and son who kind of overlap each other for a little while. But they have been from all eternity coexistent, and their relationship is one of intimacy. It's interesting, sometimes we can stress out over little words and make them bigger than what they really are, but, but that preposition with 
The word was with God. It occurs 700 times, and over 500 of them are translated unto or to. And the idea is communicating they are towards each other. The expression is indicating that. Their, their posture, that is the posture of the Father and of the Son, are, are facing each other. You think about a wedding, right? And the, uh, the bride comes forward and she meets her groom and they're turned facing the platform. But then there is that moment where the minister says, please turn and face each other. And sometimes it's a time where everybody smiles and rejoices. Sometimes people get a little embarrassed at that point because the bride and groom are just so much in love with each other and occupied with each other and they almost forget the wedding's going on because they're so focused on each other. Right? The idea, though, is this. They are turned with, <clears throat> properly in love. And, and I don't mean to be trite about that, but, but there is a coexistent contemporaneous intimacy. The Father and the Son, and as we know from the rest of the Scripture, the Holy Spirit, they have dwelled together from all eternity in a relationship of mutual love and adoration. And then, thirdly, we see that the word was, the end of the verse, the word was God. So he existed before all other existence. And he existed with the Father as God. And you can see it for yourself. There is no article there. An article like the or a. It's often found before theos, which is God, which would emphasize the God, the unique God. But a missing article places the emphasis on the quality of it. The word was I could say it this way, the word was divine. The word was deity. Now, brethren, think of how each of these expressions lays all important foundation stones. If I were to say to you, is Jesus less than God? The answer is no. His nature is what? Very God of very God. He's deity. Is Jesus all there is to God? No. The Father and Son, and as we've said from other scriptures, the Spirit, are coexistent contemporaneously God. Well, is there more than one God? Are there two? Are there three gods? There's nothing here (coughs) that gives you room for that suggestion. You couldn't exegete this passage and compare it to other scriptures and arrive at that. You'd have to do eisegete. You'd have to come here with some preconceived notion to make it all fit. <clears throat> Verse 2 wraps all of this up so that none of those phrases can leak out. They all three stay together. Verse 2, the same was in the beginning with God. Eternal, distinct from, but with and very God of very God. Now, brethren, why is that important? There are many who will talk honorably about Jesus during the Christmas season. Or Easter season, whatever time period it may be. 
But there are many who will talk honorably about Jesus, but they do not believe that he is eternal God, eternally coexistent with the Father. There will be some, like a man I sat beside on a plane recently, that said he had no problem with Christmas because he believed that Jesus was a good prophet like Muhammad was a great prophet. I don't have a problem with it because, after all, he's, he was a good man. He's a good prophet. There will be some who think that Jesus is a prophet like Joseph Smith, the founder of the Latter-day Saints, was a great prophet. There will be some who agree with the Gnostic doctrine behind Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code. That the one God is truly, you know, really unknowably, that Je- uh, unknowable, and that Jesus is one of many sub-level gods. That might help us know a little more about God. There will be some, even within the ranks of Protestant Christianity, that will say things like, we can't really know. In fact, it's probably doubtful that Jesus was really God, that he really took on flesh being born of a virgin, but... But the story is so touching and there's no doubt that he was a great moral example. And so we're going to go ahead and go with it. But according to the Holy Scripture, just kind of tipping your hat uh, that, that uh, Jesus is any of those things, that he's maybe a God or at least a good prophet or a touching moral example, <clears throat> To do any of that without full persuasion that he is the son of God. To do any of that without an unreserved exclusive trust that he is the Christ. Leaves you short of eternal life. Leaves you short of the very life of God. But when God graciously opens blinded eyes. And a sinner responds to that gracious drawing on his heart. It is life-changing. The the old English commentator Matthew Henry recites in his commentary the testimony of another minister in his day named Francis Junius that was, as a young man, he cared little for religion. He was living a godless life. And he actually accidentally encountered his father's Bible that was left open to the first chapter of John. And as he read the words that we've considered this morning, just the reading of these words, he trembled. He was struck with such amazement that he could hardly know what else to do. And by the time that day was over, the Spirit of God drew him to take the one who is the Christ, the Son of God, and the source of all life. I don't have time this morning to further explore the nature of the believing that John points to, as I said earlier, a hundred times in this book. But if I did, I could demonstrate that believing is what we've just talked about. Believing is an unreserved, exclusive trust in the life and the sacrificial death of Jesus of Nazareth for the forgiveness of sin and eternal life. In John 3, we learn that Jesus himself said that some people won't believe. 
Because believing in this way means coming to the light. And some men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. John 6 and elsewhere we learn that some won't believe because they want to cling to thoughts that their own religious efforts in some way are part of what earns their standing with God. But this saving believing that receives life is exclusively in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and unreservedly in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And dear friend, if this is the nature of your faith this morning, then I want to assure you from the scripture that your life and your faith could not be grounded upon a more sure foundation. Your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ the everlasting God. But I want to tell you, if you're here this morning, and this is not the foundation of life and faith for time and for all eternity, you need to respond to the very purpose statement of this book. You need to abandon everything else and put all your dependence on Jesus Christ alone to save you from sin and hell. Would you just bow your head and close your eyes this morning? And I know we've just begun to lay a foundation that Lord willing, we'll return to tonight as 